Hey, welcome to the Business of Freelancing, Episode 2. This is Brennan Dunn. And this is Eric Davis. And today we will be talking about marketing ROI, or the return on investment that you get from different marketing efforts. Uh, so Eric, um, you know, last week we talked about, we kind of went over the initial, uh, I guess, <laughs> our, our initial plan for this uh, conversation. And... Uh, why don't we start with maybe talking about different ways that we both um, have marketed our consulting services in the past. Okay, yeah, kind of start with what we did originally and then talk about maybe like what we did wrong or once we started actually measuring and doing the metrics on it. Yeah, yeah, do you want to start? Sure, so let's see, um, when I got started, I was doing a lot of blogging. I was actually blogging before I got into freelancing, but I was doing some blogging um, did you know commenting on other people's blogs kind of in the industry and niche I was in and then did a bit of like forum I guess forum postings which you'd call it um you know mostly just talking with the community and doing that sort of stuff and so that was kind of my main marketing for probably about a year maybe two years um that got that evolved into Twitter and you know all the social networks as they came up but mostly it was uh like writing generated and after I would kind of you know, market or talk to someone, you know, through the web, I might transition it to like talk to them over email and then that might transition into phone calls. And then that's where I'd actually start talking to them as a client. But predominantly, most of my stuff was kind of textual web-based marketing. So is that more like technical? Like you would have a blog post about, you know, Redmine or something and people would find you that way? Or was it more, I guess, business blog posts? I mean, it was a mix. I mean, it still is a mix. Like, I'm I'm trying to figure out what I want to focus on. But, I mean, I'd have a technical post, and that would attract someone saying, hey, I want to do something you talked about in the post. Can you write the code for me? But it would also be kind of business. That, like, I'd talk about what I'm doing for marketing or, like, business planning and stuff like that. And then a business owner would say, hey, I, I like this post. I saw you actually have some experience doing Ruby programming. I actually have a Ruby project. And so it's... I, I didn't really, I don't even think I still am tracking, you know, which leads or which clients come from, if it's a technical or business post. But, I mean, I'm, I'm all over the map. When I have an opinion on something, I'll tend to write about it. And then later on, I'll figure out, like, oh, I guess I should kind of focus on something else. Yeah, I um, actually have a bit of a guilty confession in that I've never actually, I don't think I've ever gotten a client via blogging. Um I got into the content marketing game very late, and by that time, um, I was so focused on the immediate projects that I didn't really invest into, you know, building up a an array of blog posts that would market my services in the future. Uh, and I, I still really haven't. I mean, my my consulting site is actually a work in progress at the moment, and I've actually gotten surprisingly a few projects through. Um, through my product blog, where people will sign up and they'll say, hey, I, I like what you did with this. Um, can you do it for me? Uh, but let me ask you a question. So how would you say, when you segment your customers, um, people who find you, do, you, do you happen to know typically what posts they found you via? Or is it more, they'll just reach out to you and you don't really know where they came from, um, what they read, if they're more technically inclined or if they're not as technically inclined? 
Um, that's kind of that's a good question because I've actually been asking myself that this week, trying to figure out like, you know, it's the stereotypical marketing sales funnel. Like someone has first exposure at this point, and then they go through do certain things, and eventually like they end up talking to you. And I don't have very good tracking of that. Um, I some people say, hey, I've been reading your blog, or some people will just come to my website and say, hey, I found you. I was looking for something in Google, and this is how I found you. Um, Almost every time when someone does like an initial email to me or a phone call, I try to ask them like, how did you hear about me? But I don't think, yeah, I don't think I've ever had anyone say specifically, I saw you from this blog post. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know I have uh, analytics stuff on my website, so I know which blog posts are getting the most traffic and then which ones have been getting the traffic recently, but I can't actually tie it down to one specific person. Okay. So... Yeah, I think that's something we'll want to, because I know I'm kind of in the same boat where, well, most of my clients have come from direct referrals. So it's a little easier because the beginning of our conversation will usually be, you know, so-and-so recommended me or recommended you. And, you know, we'll start from there. But now that I'm looking to diversify the way, now that I'm really diversifying the way that I get new business, um, Considering I've put so much effort into uh, knowing what avenues are working for my product, it just makes sense to do the same with my services company. Yeah, and I mean, the difficult part, and this is kind of like, you know, when we get into the actual ROI, is like fi- figuring out where someone came from is such a hard thing to do that it might not actually be valuable to your business to do it. Like, it's it's the idea of detail. Like, if it might take, we'll just use dollar amounts. It might take you a dollar to find out this person came from your blog, but it might take $500 to find out that they came from this specific post on your blog, just in the amount of time and effort and all the systems you'd have to build for it. And, you know, depending on what you're selling, that might be too much. Like for your your product stuff, you know, spending $500 per time to figure out where someone came from might not be worth it, but spending a dollar, yeah, that's worth it. And that's actually a good return to your business. And that's kind of what I'm running into. Like, I think I was looking. I think my blog gets it's either four or eight thousand uh, unique visits a month or whatever. And tracking every single one of those, and then between my blog and my uh, client services website, which are two separate sites, like the amount of integration I'd have to do for that is actually pretty hard. And I don't think it's actually going to be worth it, even on my high dollar end client services, because it's I've it's easier for me just to make more marketing stuff or actually serve my clients. Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is no one's going to stumble upon your site, read a blog post and say, you know what, that's it. I'm going to call Eric right now and give him thousands of dollars. I mean, it's, it's you know, we're consulting is very high touch. So people are going to probably look around, you know, close the window, come back a week later. I, don't, I just don't think tracking refer sources is going to be is something that really makes a lot of sense um, for what we're doing. No, I mean, it might make a lot of sense in the aggregate, like Hacker News sends me a lot of traffic or Reddit sends me a lot of traffic or, you know, this industry blog sends me a lot of traffic, but not actually like individual ones and twos. Yeah, I would agree. Um, So let's talk about, I mean, content marketing is definitely one approach, but as consultants, there are, you know, there, there's really an infinite number of ways that somebody can 
knock on our door, right? I mean, just to think through past clients, I've had uh, referrals through former customers. I've had um, past customers come back for more work. Um, I've hosted user groups that have yielded new leads or indirect leads. So sometimes you might host a, um, a user group or a little mini conference and the attendees might not be the end client, but if you, um, if you promote your services there, you know, word gets around, right? Um, what else? Have, I mean, there's been, I've actually had one, one lead call me saying they saw me on Hacker News. I mean, there, there are so many different outlets and I think, one thing that I'm really trying to do, and I know this is the goal of this uh, this uh, episode, is what about what I'm doing that takes time is yielding positive results that I should reinvest into that avenue and potentially get more clients. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to like, what do you want to experiment with? Like, what's what's giving you enough value, even if it's a little bit of value, like. Is this something like, oh, I want to scale up of this? Like, like you were saying, for me, I've done a lot of content marketing. Um, wasn't on purpose. That's just that's what was comfortable for me, and that's worked for me. But I've tried other things, and they just they don't pan out, or they don't work as good or as efficient as content marketing. So I've ended up dropped them or kind of left them on the back burner as maybe someday I'll try this again. Right. I'm just trying to go through my head, and so say you're at a Say you're at a conference, right, and you're networking with people. Um, would it be would it be a safe assumption to think if if I get a client, say I go to uh, Ruby Nation up in DC, I get a client from there. Does that mean necessarily that I should increase exposure at conferences, or instead should I? Um, I mean, what do you think? Like. I guess what I'm trying to get at is what uh how should we determine should we determine if, if I get say if I get a new client or lead from a certain avenue, does that necessarily mean that I should be focusing exclusively on that avenue with ignoring the ones that aren't working? Or you know, I guess I'm trying to parallel <laughs> I'm I'm good at this with products, but I'm I'm struggling at figuring out how to do this with uh high touch sales or services. Well, I mean, I think what you got to do is when you talk to them, like you said, like the person at a conference is try to draw out because you can ask directly, but sometimes it's kind of feels really salesy, but try to draw out like, is this the first time they've ever had contact with you? Like, have they ever read your blog? Have they been to your site? Have they seen you at another conference and just didn't speak to you there? Because you might find that, yeah, this is the first time you've actually talked with them, but they might have seen you present at another conference or watched one of your videos online or read your blog. And so if you kind of try to over-optimize and say, oh, conferences are working, I'm only going to do conferences, you might cut off kind of that prior trust-building stuff, like, say, blogging. And then you can keep going to conferences, but you're not going to actually meet anyone because no one knows you anymore. And so that's something you have to kind of be careful about. Um, it's kind of like uh, in Duct Tape Marketing, uh, a book by, I think, John Jance is the name. He talks about like know, like, and trust. So someone needs to know you, and then they need to kind of warm up to you and start to like you. And then eventually they'll start trusting you. And then around that point is when they might actually buy something from you. 
And so you kind of need like a multi-touch approach of, you know, maybe they come to your blog or maybe you meet them at one conference and they get to know you. And then at another conference, you sit down and maybe go out to dinner with them. And that's when they kind of start liking you. And then by the third time, you guys might actually just talk on the phone. And that's where the final trust part comes in. And that's when you can actually, you know, work with them or sell them on a product. I mean, yeah. So I, I think I think what it comes down to is you need to have an armory, right? You need to have um, you know, if somebody meets you at a conference, you need to be coming up with valuable information to them when somebody Googles your name. Um, likewise, if somebody, um, you, you know, having kind of like a, a complete array of different, I guess, trust emblems. I don't, I don't know a better way of putting that, but um, things that you've done, whether it be open source applications or blog posts that just really resonate with potential clients. Um, increasing that trust factor is probably, I mean, the bigger the project, the more risky the project is for the potential client. I think the, uh, the longer that, that cycle will be. I mean, I've had, I've had projects that, I mean, initial contact to closing was, you know, upwards of six months. Um, so I think, I think that actually what, what you just brought up with duct tape marketing really makes a lot of sense in that, you know, it, it's naive of us to think, oh, hello, Mr. New Client. Um, my name's Brennan Dunn. I, I do this and I can help you with that. And then to think that immediately tomorrow I'm going to be getting a, a check made out to me um, for that amount. I mean, that just doesn't, that's, that rarely happens. When it has happened, actually, has been through strong referrals because really if, if, a, if a friend is recommending you to another friend, uh, the trust is really typically carried over with that. So for somebody who met you either, you know, by Googling around or, or stumbling upon your blog or at a, at an event, um, unless, unless they quickly win your, or unless you quickly win their trust, um, I think it would make a lot of sense to make sure that you have enough different things out there that can help reinforce that trust. Yeah, and there's also a bit this said about, you know, having diverse marketing sources cuz if all you rely on is blogging or going to a conference or one thing, if the industry changes or technology changes or any something changes and completely wipes that out, you go from 100%, you know, doing all your marketing to zero. Like you know, Google does a lot of algorithm changes. If they do something and all of a sudden your blog is kicked off the internet, your funnel is completely dead at that point. Or if you go to conferences and all of a sudden, say someone in your family gets really sick and you aren't able to travel as much, well, now that funnel's dead. And so you kind of need, I, I would say at the very least, one backup source that you do a lot of that kind of complements your primary one. And if you can, try to have two. So, you know, you could be, you know, going to conferences could be your main one, but you can back that up with blogging and then maybe um, kind of like networking, like going to user groups and stuff like that. So that's that's another thing to think about. Yeah, and since we're speaking of ROI, I mean, you know, the fact is conferences tend to be a lot more expensive than user groups. Um, well, and there's also a limit. There's only X number of conferences a year that you can go to. Exactly right. I mean, there, right? There's a you can only be in one place at one time, and um, conferences can be expensive. But that being said, 
Um, I think I think Patrick McKenzie said this quite a few times. You know, he he tends to go to expensive conferences because if somebody's willing to spend, you know, a few thousand dollars on their employees to go to a conference, chances are their pockets are deep deep enough to hire him. So you know, there's different. Like I've personally tried to diversify my conferences to be more than just Ruby conferences or or development conferences, and I've gone to a few different business conferences, which hasn't really materialized with anything yet, but it's it's definitely laying the foundation of, I think, um, some future contracts that might come from people who might not know what Ruby on Rails is, for instance, or JavaScript or whatnot. They just they have problems that need solutions, and they go to conferences, whether whether it be industry conferences or just general entrepreneurship or business conferences, and then I had the opportunity while there to promote my basically my my solution finding experience and my medium happens to be for instance ruby but that's not at the forefront of my marketing effort yeah i mean it's like they don't need to know how the sausage is made type thing like as long as there's sausage made that they like and it helps them you know that's good exactly right and i think um i think you'll find a lot of them you know I hate putting it like this, but a lot of the clients that you might find at a technical conference might be looking for more commodity developers. You know, hey, I need a Ruby developer or I need a JavaScript developer who knows Backbone. Whereas at other types of conferences, you might have, you know, actual business owners who don't really know what they need. They know they know where they need to get to, but they're really looking for formal consulting. And what I can tell tell everyone is that when you market yourself as a consultant instead of a, you know, commodity, um, you can usually get paid quite a bit more. You know, if you attend if you attend industry conferences for Ruby developers, you're going to find a lot of like like people, right? Um, one of the things I'm really trying to focus on uh, is to attend really watering holes or conferences where people like me usually aren't found. So. I might go to an industry conference on, uh, you know, the business of education, for instance, and I might be able to find a business owner who knows where they need to get to, but might not know how. And I can come in as a consultant um, instead of saying, hey, I'm a Ruby on Rails developer, hire me. Instead, I'm telling them that I can help get them to that end goal using software. And the end result for me, at least, is the... uh, you know, the, the price that you're able to charge as a consultant is usually substantially higher than that of a commodity. I've seen kind of something similar where it's not just the price, but it's also when you're talking with the business owner, you're talking with, you know, the decision maker. So I found when I can talk to someone at a higher level like that and about what are your business values, the project moves a lot faster, both in you know, going from initial talks to getting the contract, but also in when the project starts to when it actually starts producing results. Because, I mean, basically, when you get to higher levels, some people just, they don't want to deal with BS. And so they just want to move stuff along. Whereas with, you know, the kind of, I'm going to say lower level, like, so you'll say like middle management level, some of those projects tend to be like a lot of red tape, go through the bureaucracy of the organization. And that's a lot of the stress that comes from freelancing that I experience is from that. It's not actually from 
the people or you know the project or the technical stuff but it's the oh no we got to wait for this other invoice to get approved and you know please you know please wait refer to our policy type stuff and that's what that's what beats me up about freelance and versus if you talk to the actual you know business owner the person who runs the company you know they can just say we're just going to cut through all this bs and i'll just write you a check right here and now yeah, and I think I would argue, too, that one of the benefits of that approach is you're typically going to be the person hired for the job instead of coming in to augment an existing team. Um, I much prefer being kind of the architect and developer instead of, you know, being hired to, um, you know, just be kind of like a, oh, we need to throw keyboards at the problem. Let's find a, a developer who can do that. Um, so yeah, I think the caliber of client is dramatically different depending on how, depending on the avenue that you get that client from. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you want to go to Odesk and you want to get clients that way, you are going to be a commodity. You're going to have very little latitude and, and take this with a grain of salt because it, you know, it's not always this way, but the majority of the time you're going to have very little latitude in helping influence business decisions. Whereas when you're working with a small business owner or somebody who not only can hire you, but it can also write the check that pays you, um, you're usually brought on as an, as an advisor to them and you'll have a lot more uh, flexibility and, and respect, I think. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's basically commodities, but you know, different scales of it. You know, are you a one of a kind or are you, you know, like on the other end, are you just another person on a no desk where it's, we're just outsourcing someone to type on a keyboard and that's, that's going to affect your pricing and, you know, basically a whole bunch of, basically everything else in your business, you know, marketing on down. Exactly. So let, let's talk for a second about my favorite way of getting new clients. And that is through either getting a referral or getting repeat business. Cause the fact of the matter is um, I have signed six-figure deals in 15 minutes because I've gotten such a strong recommendation from a former client that a lot of the typical sales talk never had to go through. And what I found is that a lot of freelancers uh, do a pretty poor job at maintaining um, the relationships they've had with past clients um, and asking and having the, the, uh, the know-how to properly ask for a referral. So in terms of ROI, I mean, this can literally be a email every few month investment that can yield you a lot of, a lot of income with very little effort, or at least upfront effort. Um, so Eric, have you, how, how have you um, in the past, like how, how have referrals and repeat business worked out for you? Um, I'll admit I'm very ad hoc with it. I, uh, just I think this is coming from the developer side into business is I'm nervous about asking people for things. And so asking for a referral doesn't feel quite right to me. I mean, I know I should and I know it's going to help everyone involved, but I have I've hesitated to do it. I've had a couple clients that would just give me a referral um, and those turned out good on all accounts. And then repeat business I've been really good at because I mean, the big thing for my services is, yeah, I do Ruby on Rails development, but I also have a lot of communication on top of it. So it's not just, hey, let's give Eric this task. He's going to go in the corner and he'll come back when he's done. It's I'm checking in, you know, sometimes daily, sometimes every few days, pretty often. 
you know, having regular meetings, talking with the client. And so I build kind of a good amount of trust with each client. And so that means when one project's done, we've either started on another project or we're in discussion about getting another one going in a few months. And so repeat business has been really good for me. And that's been, it's for the past few years, it's probably been about 80% of my business. And then referrals, I mean... I can probably count on one hand how many referrals I've gotten just because I'm not asking for them. Yeah, so I think, I mean, the the only problem really re- with repeat business and referrals even is that if you're, if you're expecting a steady stream of income, you can't just sit around and wait for your clients to accidentally refer somebody to you or to come back with new work. Um, for For situations like, I tend to be in situations where they're kind of one-off projects, you know, they're built and then they might hand it off to another team. Um, I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I won't say downtime, but there, there could be a lot of downtime unless I aggressively try to, you know, kind of keep, keep the floodgates open. And, and one of the things that's really worked for me is to, uh, and I actually, amazingly, I learned this from a real estate agent who hired me to build a follow-up program for him. And he was telling me about how a lot of realtors, they will, and now I've seen this, because the same thing happened to me when I bought a house. They sell a house, and then they might talk to you for the first week after that, but then you never hear from them, them again. Or you get on some like mailing list of theirs that you get something once a year. Now, one of the things I've really tried to focus on is reaching out to existing clients and asking them, not in a blanketed like newsletter fashion, but reaching out and saying, hey, John, uh, you know, I just wanted to see how that project we worked on last year was going. Um, if you don't mind sharing, do you have any you know, success stories or whatnot? And I'd love to hear any, uh, you know, if there's anything I could ever do to help, you know, you know how to find me. And I, as always, I really enjoyed working with you and I'd love to do it again sometime. Um, and I'll usually actually close with, with something like, um, by the way, I'm always open to new projects. And again, I just to reinforce, I enjoyed working with you a lot. And I'd probably enjoy working with anyone, uh, any you know, associates of yours who might be looking for something that I can offer. Um, so you know, feel free to reach out to me if you come across anyone who um, I might be able to help. Now, I've debated for a while, do I ever want to offer incentives? And people, you know, some people say you should, some people say you shouldn't. I'm not really big into the whole affiliate program of past clients. Like, I don't want to say, if you give me, uh, you know, any, any, any person you refer to me, I will give you either a finder's fee or I can give you free work. I, I find that kind of tends to really cheapen the relationship because if you have a really solid relationship with a past client, they're going to go out of their way and do this for you with no strings attached. Um, so I haven't done any sort of incentives, but um, some people I've talked to have, but I, I just tend to be somebody who thinks, you know, if I, if I really like a vendor that I worked with, if I really like the guy who fixed my air conditioning, um, when somebody asked me for, you know, an air conditioning or air conditioning repair company, he's going to come to my mind. But you really need to kind of sometimes keep yourself at the front of their mind by following up with them every few months or so. 
I've had a couple people mention that they'll do like a finder's fee or referral fee if I refer them work. And I just say, don't worry about it because, you know, if I'm referring them something, basically they're helping either a client that I couldn't help or someone else like a lead that I couldn't help. And so it ends up that the person I referred them to is getting business. The The potential client is getting whatever they need, you know, a software or a website or whatever. And I might be getting a bit of goodwill just for connecting the, the two. And so it's also a lot easier, like time-wise, to not have to worry about that because it kind of just keeps it a very ad hoc social relationship instead of turn it into a business relationship with, okay, you owe me 15% of what you make plus 1% per month each month thereafter, all that stuff. And so I don't, I don't do referral fees. I actually just have a, a, a list of people that I refer stuff to. And if I'm overbooked or a client's not a good fit for me, I just say, hey, here's some people that you might want to talk to. I know this guy's really good at XYZ and he might be able to help you. And so that's kind of how I handle referrals. And it's it's very lightweight, and typically the the potential client would just say thanks for that, and they'll go on their way, and they might email me later on saying, "Hey, that referral really worked good. Thanks for that." Yeah, I mean, anytime I've ever tried to be a middleman or be, you know, if you, I mean, it's just it's messy. <laughs> That's all I can say is it's messy if you want to try to, especially if you're saying 10 15 percent of the entire project budget. I mean, then you're. It's just, it's usually almost always, it sounds very good on paper, but it's never, what I found, it's, it, it never tends to be really worth it at all. Um, all right, so we've talked a little about, you know, we've, we've talked about the different, what I like to call the, uh, the, the arrows in my quiver, right? <laughs> Which are different, um, different ways of reinforcing what I'm doing. So I go to a conference, I might meet somebody, I give them my card, they go to my site, they can read a a huge amount of articles that I've read that should provide value to them that would establish myself as an authority in something that they're looking to, you know, as an authority in the space that they're looking to hire in. Um, we've also talked about uh, referrals and repeat business, which, you know, I, I vote is probably the easiest way um, and often overlooked way of getting new work. Uh, what are we missing? Are you, is there anything that you think that uh, we should cover that we haven't talked about? Um, I mean, we also talked about kind of, I guess, don't overthink measuring it. Like, don't try to get it down to the penny. Like, just get it really close as you can. And, I mean, for me, I, I consider different things channels. So, like, my websites are a channel of where people get to me. Um, if I did advertising, that's going to be a different channel. And I just try to look for what channels are working the best, not necessarily like which website inside of a channel is the best, but just overall like this, like I guess this tactic works for me better than this other tactic. And I mean, I guess really you just got to kind of track it, like where stuff's coming from, like especially closed projects. Like if you get one, and it goes to contract and the project's good, I mean, track where they came from. And if you if you forget to ask at the beginning, try to ask, you know, as soon as you can, just be like, hey, I, just for my own internal records and just to, you know, improve as a business, where'd you hear about me from? And I think basically knowing where they heard about you and, you know, how much you're making off the project, like that's going to give you enough to calculate a basic ROI. And if you track it over time, you'll be able to kind of get a good idea what works and what doesn't. Yeah, I'd, I'd completely agree. I think um, 
I think we're in enough. I mean, we're sales for consulting is high enough touch that we can usually determine pretty quickly uh, what what marketing means might have brought this person to us. Um, sometimes it'll be a lot easier. Like I said, a referral or say you meet somebody at a networking event, you exchange cards, you follow up, you get a deal. It's very easy to kind of trace back the, the path of that new client. Um, but I think one, one of the things I think that we want to, we want to definitely leave with is we need to make sure that the, that we're not just, we're not just one avenue, right? We need, we need to keep up with, I don't know, I don't know a better way of putting this, but things that will increase trust with a potential client and us. That could be blogging, that could be a Twitter feed, that could be, um, you know, guest blog posts that come up when you Google your name. Um, people, especially the bigger the project, they will research you. They're not just going to probably trust that you can do what they're what they're hoping you can do. Um, so any anything you can do to establish yourself as an authority in the subject, really, I think, will ultimately be for your benefit. Yeah, and I mean to kind of also combine with that if you can bring other people in like third parties to say that you're an authority like that's that's a huge trust builder i mean if i say on my site that i'm an expert rails developer that's great and all but that's me talking about myself i mean that's if you're in consulting that's kind of expected but if i had say new york times saying that i'm a great rails developer well that's a completely different story exactly yep so um do we want to move on to uh, to resources? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, why don't you start? Okay, so I got two resources here. Um, the first one is a blog post I found by Productive Flourishing. Uh, what's it called? It's called "Why Are You Trying to Save Time." It's a it's an interesting post. I'm not going to try to spoil it, but the point is, is a lot of I mean, especially freelancers or entrepreneurs, we worry a lot about like oh, I need to become more productive and save 10 minutes each day. And this post kind of looks at that and really kind of analyzes, like, is that really what you need to do? Um, it's a pretty short post. It's pretty interesting. Um, and once again, it's on ProductiveFlourishing.com, and I'll have a link in the show notes. And then the second one, let me pull it up here. So the second one's kind of, it's a bit different. I actually saw it in a running magazine called Running Times. Um Quick context, it's about, uh, I guess, track events and how, as a sport, they're not as popular as, say, football or soccer or any of that stuff. And some people are complaining about it. But the kind of the pick or the, the resource out of it is there's a bunch of arguing in the forums, and one person actually kind of stood up and said, what is it that we want? And so that one comment kind of completely changed the way the discussion went from we're doing this wrong, we're doing this wrong, to trying to figure out as a community, what do they really want to do? What are they trying to improve? Like, is track trying to compete with football or do they just want more people to participate? So to kind of bring that into freelancing, that's kind of a good question to ask any potential new customers. What do you want? I mean, 
Yes, you might be asking for some software or a web design, but why do you want that? Do you want the new software to save costs? Are you wanting it to start up a new business division? You know, are you needing a new website because your competitor is redoing theirs and it looks prettier? Or are you needing a new website because you want to embrace more mobile stuff? So that's that's kind of my pick. I mean, it's kind of a a question of what is it that you what is it that you want? And asking that to a client could really change the conversation and the types of conversations you're having with them. Yeah, and to follow up, I think that that's really the sign of a good good consultant, right? Like if you're if you're focused more on the outcome rather than the uh, the medium and getting there, uh, that usually is a short a shorter way to really ensure that you're going to get the project um, because a lot of a lot of freelancers and, and we'll talk about this in a future episode but a lot of freelancers position themselves and in, in focusing so much on their medium you know the code they write the designs the copy instead of getting to the point of you know why why is somebody paying money to me to get this to to be built like you know what what's the underlying motivation so yeah, and I mean, especially if you're the expert, they could be coming to you of a project that you know, say it does A, and if they say we want pro- we want this project because we're trying to achieve this outcome, you could look at it as the expert and say, well, actually, if you do the project B here instead of A, you're going to get to that outcome with better results. And so, you know, never kind of think that what the client comes to you with as the project is actually what they need. You have to kind of dig down a little bit and figure out what they really need and see if what they're asking for is actually going to fit that. Exactly. All right. So let me move on to my uh, two things that have really helped me over the last week. Uh, The first is I started using rescue time. And once you get over the hurdle of wanting to, uh, wanting to pause it every time you try to open up Hacker News, it it really is a great tool. Um, Especially since I do all of my coding in, in Vim in the terminal. And apparently the default setting for terminal is really product, you know, productive work. So apparently, I uh, I tend to be super productive. Um, my my second pick is going to be Mailchimp. Uh, I've been setting up a content marketing campaign for my product, and I've been using their autoresponders to kind of set up a, a you know a drip campaign. Um, they've got a pretty good as somebody who once wrote a WYSIWYG editor, or for those of you not in the know, a, a, uh, one of those editors on a web page that lets you modify the uh, formatting and rich text of content. Um, it, it, they, they, they built a pretty nice, from what I can tell, a pretty nice uh, editor for putting together emails. So I've, uh, I've actually just set up, as of a few hours ago, my content marketing campaign. And um, so far, you know, you know, MailChimp's been great for that. Yeah, MailChimp, I like their editor, and it's it's very, very friendly, especially the UI. Last time I used their autoresponder system, though, that function, the functionality there wasn't that great. Um, they might have improved it, but it's, I don't know. I We can talk about it offline, but if you are doing any kind of, even just a monthly newsletter, uh, MailChimp is a great resource to use. I think they even still have kind of a free or very inexpensive plan, so you can get started. And that could be what you're talking about earlier, Brendan, where it's you know touching base with clients every few months at the very least. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, you need to be careful in that uh, 
nothing is better than a one-to-one personal email, but there is a point or there is a, there's something to be said. And I would love, you know, if anyone tries this out and has good luck, maybe anytime you get a new lead, you know, put them on a list, set up a a series of really well-timed out autoresponders, not the typical one, three, five day setup, but maybe one month, three months and so on um, as follow-up and let us know how that works. But yeah, that's, um, yeah, let's talk offline about it. I'd love to hear more about your autoresponder issue. You want to get to the action item? Yeah, so uh, like, like we said in the first episode, if you heard it, we want to make sure that each episode ends with a, a, uh, a call to action or, or something actionable that you can implement in your business. So um, I would encourage everyone to uh, really look at where you've gotten, you know, do a little reflection. Where have you gotten clients in the past? What's worked? What do you know has specifically increased the trust a potential lead had in you and ended up converting them to a client? And whatever that is, amplify that. Um, and if you can come up with a, a some sort of financial figure, a uh, you know an investment versus the return you got out of a, a given project, uh, let us know what that is. We'd love to we'd love to hear um, you know what you come up with. Eric? Yeah. And I mean, if you don't even want to share the actual total financial, I mean, just the percentage. I mean, you know, if you say it takes me an hour to write a blog post at the cost of what, you can say like my return on investments, you know, 1,125%. And so that's that's an interesting number because you it's hard to compare like blogging, which mostly takes time to conferences, which takes a bit of time, but a lot more money. But if you can kind of, you know, get it all down to one percentage number, like you can kind of start comparing across the board on things. So, yeah, I mean, just try to do the ROI for one thing. Um, if you haven't been tracking where people are coming from, it's a bit harder. You can just try to make a couple of guesses and just mark that these are guesses and, you know, play with it a little bit. And you might be surprised. Definitely. Um, you want to talk about next week? Yeah, sure. So the topic we're going to talk about next week is pricing methods. And we mentioned this in the first show. It's not actually like how to set your price or any of that stuff, but it's actually the different methods of pricing. So, you know, are you going to do something like cost plus or market driven or value based? And the kind of idea is like these are different, I guess, options or tactics you can use with your price, you know, depending on the project, depending on what kind of work you do, and also depending on what you're most comfortable with. So we're going to get in with that a little bit. Sounds great. Um, I guess that's a wrap. So thanks again. This is episode two, and uh, we should be back in a week with the next installment of the Business of Freelancing. Yeah, take care. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.